Tonight, we have a, uh, a thing to, I have a thing to share with you, and I think it's just really important <laughs> to talk about, so that's why I'm talking about it. And uh, you have the sheet in front of you, we're talking about world vision. There's also a sheet on your table that is not for one of you, but for all of you, so you must share it. We will get to that later. It's got a little country on it, or a big country. And uh, so just hold on to that, but don't, uh, don't lose it or eat it. Uh, so then uh, getting into tonight's topic, world vision. And you may have kind of different, I don't know, experiences with this term. Maybe you've just heard it said a lot to the point where you kind of, you kind of, it doesn't really phase you anymore. Maybe you've never heard this term before. Um, that's great. Either way, you're, you're here, and I just really want to share some things that are on the heart of God about world vision. And I think that'll be just really important, really beneficial for us for tonight, for you all. And so I'm really looking forward to it. I think it'll be really, really helpful as you are continuing to walk your walk with God and trying to apply it in a way that is beyond just you, but also, and also beyond where you live and just out beyond to the ends of the earth. I really want us to like obtain a global perspective of world vision through this time tonight. We're going to get into what all that means. So I want to pray to invite God to do some cool things tonight. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here and for, uh, God, the light that you have shown into each of our lives. And I pray that we would be responsive to that light through the way that we just approach your gospel, the way we approach your world, Lord. And it is, it is big, but it, you are so much bigger. And you have big plans for the way in which us in this room are to use our lives to further your kingdom throughout the whole world. And so I pray that through tonight, through your word, through your spirit, just working in our hearts, I pray that you would show us something deep and meaningful and uh, clarifying that will lead us in a good direction of world vision, of understanding the depth and the role of missions in our life, in my life. Um, thank you, Lord. Thank you for all you're going to do in your name. Amen. So the first question we need to ask is what is, what is world vision? I have that question right at the top of your page there. And the definition or my definition, I actually Googled world vision and apparently it's a quite big organization. You can't go you, you can search three pages on Google. That's as far as I got. And I couldn't find anything else that would really actually give a definition generally about the term world vision. So, and I feel like, man, I've heard this, this term so many times. It's like really important. So, but I never, I didn't see anything specifically that had a definition. So, so uh, me, so David came up with a little definition. Uh, seeing the world the way God does. Seeing the world the way God does. So it's pretty good. It's kind of succinct. I feel like that's, that, that'll do for, for our purposes tonight. 
but uh, I don't claim to be the authority on this or anything. But uh, I think that that's just important. Seeing the world the way God does. What does that mean? On Sunday, in this room, uh, actually, Pastor Tim Heron uh, at Chico Community Church said some things that apply directly to this idea. He said that we need to see people the way God does, right? He here was, he was, he was here, yeah? So why do we need to see people the way God does? Because the way that we see or view things, view people, affects the effort or action that you put toward that thing or that person or whatever. He also mentioned John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. That's everybody. This foundational verse clearly exposes the heart of God. Later tonight, we'll see just how, just how passionate God is about bringing the nations to himself. But here we see the way God sees the world. He sees it and everyone in it as lost and in need of a savior. And he loves them. He loved them enough. He loved us enough to send Jesus to save us, right? And uh, <laughs> in the movie Seven, it's kind of a dark movie to be referencing right here, but I'm, I'm doing it. There's a, there's a valuable truth in it that I want to highlight. There's this guy named William Somerset. He's played by Morgan Freeman. He's a cool guy. Um, he's a dis disillusioned like detective who's about to retire. And um, throughout the movie, he witnesses the results of all kinds of just atrocities that he has to investigate. And the movie ends with this quote from William Somerset. He says, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. That's, uh, that is with no Morgan Freeman impression. I'm sorry, guys, but uh, I'm not going to do it tonight. I don't think I'm ever going to try that. What he means is, up there, is the world a fine place? I mean, in some ways, yeah, but, but no, there's crime and evil and poverty and lostness in the world. And so there's this sense in which, no, it's, you know, it's not a fine place, but is it worth fighting for? Yes. The way he sees the world now will now dictate the way he chooses to act. And so that's what Tim was talking about. Just the way you see things, the way you see the world is going to dictate how you choose um, to act. So the truth is that the world is far from God, but God loves every person past, present, and future in spite of their evil. Every person then has the opportunity to respond to, God, to, respond to God's love if, big if, if we give them that opportunity to respond to God's love. In, in the Bible, there are five great commissions found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And we're already probably familiar with one of them. Uh, let's take a look. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Made disciples of all nations, right? Mark 16, uh, 15. And he told them, go into all the world, all the world, and preach the good news to everyone. 
Luke 24, 46 through 47. And he said to them, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me Even so, I am sending you. I am sending you. And then finally, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In these different uh, great commissions, or just maybe one of them is the great one. I don't know, but they're all commissions, right? And uh, in their commissions to make disciples of everybody of the earth, of the nations, right? And in Acts 1.8 here, especially, we see Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What we see there is kind of specifying Jerusalem as where they were, and that's kind of that origin point. And then Judea and Samaria were zooming out into the ends of the earth. And so that idea of us of us, the disciples, but also us, propelled by the Holy Spirit, just reaching out to, uh, to the ends of the earth. That's, what, that's what's at stake here. That's what we're talking about. Each of these commissions give us a different angle on the same calling, right? To preach the gospel to and make disciples of the nations. And we looked at this other verse, this next verse a week ago, but I think it is crucially important to read in the context of world vision and missions. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, Note that, every nation, tribes, peoples, languages, right? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this heavenly vision of the future shows us that not only will every nation, state, every Every country be present on that day, but every tribe, people, and language will be represented as well. This is a vast breadth of people that gives us more perspective than the vague term, the world, right? When we say the world, it's kind of hard to picture like a person, but when we see these different words to specify the languages, tribes, peoples, it helps us to zoom in a little bit. God's love is for the world, but it is also for every nation, tribe, people, language. And he has opted to use us to make that happen. David Platt says this in the article. He says, this is what I'm praying might become a reality in our hearts, that you and I might realize that we must do everything we can to get the gospel to people who've never heard it that we would realize that our ownership of the gospel creates an obligation with the gospel, that we would see that saved people this side of heaven owe, owe the gospel to lost people and peoples this side of hell. 
that is that is a stirring thought that um that I don't want to forget. So pay that pay attention to that. We realize our ownership that our ownership of the gospel creates an obligation with the gospel. Don't forget that. World vision is seeing the way the world the way God does. Harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 9, 36-38. Missions, then, is a major focus tonight. We're going to look at the purpose of missions, the source of missions, and the need of missions. And we're going to talk a little bit about... Um, what to do about that, how to apply this. First, I want to take five minutes to answer the discussion questions. What is your current perspective on world missions? How do you intend to more closely align your heart for the nations with God's heart for the nations? And what questions do you have about this subject? So at your tables, go ahead and talk about this stuff. I'll take five minutes. Thanks, guys. I'm going to bring you all back together here. You can... Uh, Continue some discussions afterwards. Sounded, sounded lively. And so, um, and I want to also encourage you if you have like a limited understanding of your perspective on world missions or haven't really thought of that before, um, then that's, that's, that's why we're here, you know. It's, and also, whether you have a limited or exhausted perspective on it, so I just, um, I just hope that you'd be encouraged by tonight, challenged, and, uh, Really just seek to, seek to be teachable in the midst of it. The purpose of missions, I think that's on your next page. I want to plunge into our exploration of the purpose of missions by reading an excerpt from the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, uh, by John Piper. It's on your handout. It is a lengthy little excerpt, uh, but I encourage you to just read along with me. I'll just uh, say it out loud and just... And it's uh, a little, I don't know, I, I find it <laughs> to be a little dense and it has taken me a few times reading it over to really like kind of get into what it's talking about. But I encourage you just um, as we read, just to kind of ponder for yourself exactly what, what, is, what it's saying here. So this is John Piper. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is Missions exist, exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, uh, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of all the peoples, of the peoples and the greatness of God. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 97, one. Let the peoples praise thee, O God, and let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, Psalm 67, three through four. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad. 
who cannot say from their heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Psalm 104, 34, and 9, 2. Missions begins and ends in worship. If the pursuit of God's glory is not ordered above the pursuit of man's good in the affections of the heart and the priorities of the church, man will not be well served and God will not be duly honored. I am not pleading for a diminishing of missions, but for a magnifying of God. When the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, the light of missions will shine to the darkest peoples on earth. And I long for that day to come where passion for God is weak. Zeal for missions will be weak. Churches that are not centered on the exaltation of the majesty and beauty of God will scarcely kindle a fervent desire to declare his glory among the nations. Psalm 96, three. Now, before I say anything about the excerpt that I just read, I want you to chew on this through another discussion at your tables. I got a few more questions down there. What stands out to you from this passage? What confuses you from this passage? Does this passage affect your perspective on missions? And if so, why? And so just talk, with, talk amongst yourself at your tables. I don't want to give you any hints right now. Just, just discuss kind of what's, uh, what's he talking about, honestly. So um, talk about it. I'm so sorry to cut you off. Uh, we got we got a lot to cover. So, how do you want to keep moving? Before we go on, I'm curious: Does anybody want to share some things that stood out to them from this? Just be- really quick before we go on. Uh, Travis. And why is that? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Travis saying the idea of you can't, um, what do you say? You can't commend what you can't, don't cherish. And so the idea of, yeah, having to find a sense of joy in worship in God before you can really go into the that mission field, right? Yeah. Trying to summarize for the, <laughs> the group. Anybody else? Yes, Solomon. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's good. Missions begins and ends in worship, and we don't want to view it as an obligation or something that David told you to do one time, but that uh, <laughs> it's something that something that I really want you guys to feel the, the weight of this stuff. And so um, I think that's just going to be valuable as we continue to think about this and as you continue to wrestle with what's what does your future look like as it relates to missions? I don't know. And uh, we'll, we'll get into more of that stuff. But we do need to move on. I do want to highlight a few big tape, takeaways from the, the passage from, that we just read. The first uh, bit that stands out to me says, says, missions exists because worship doesn't. 
I don't know, it's like a very startling kind of early phrase there. And so this means that our ultimate aim is to worship God in everything we do and to draw others to worship God in everything they do. God is worthy of all worship. And since there are over 5 billion people on earth not engaging in worship of God, it's not enough. God does not demand total worship because he's an egomaniac or something. He demands total worship because he is worthy of it and because he is the ultimate good in the universe. And therefore, our existence is at its peak when we are worshiping him with our lives. Our existence is at its peak when we're worshiping him with our lives. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's another John Piper uh, ism. So we engage in missions so that God will be worshiped more. Another valuable quote, worship therefore is the fuel and goal of missions, the fuel and the goal. Piper explains this. Worship is the goal for the reasons we just addressed. We want God to be worshiped more. Therefore, we want more people to know him through missions. Worship is also the fuel of missions. He says, a love for God and the value for the things he values informs our perspective on missions. This is best summarized in another quote from the passage. It says, when the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, the light of missions will shine to the darkest peoples on earth. This flame that he refers to is passion. Our passionate worship of God must somehow find its release in shining to the ends of the earth through missions. And so a heart that values missions is a byproduct of a life dedicated to God. These are challenging words, and it leads me to wrestle with my own devotion to God if, in fact, I'm not doing all I can to advance his gospel in the world, right? Let's pray that God would make us more in love with him to the extent that we recognize the sheer importance of missions for the sake of worship. I actually want to just, I'm going to pray right now, honestly, because this is just such a crucial element that we would just, just be enraptured with who God is that that would be the thing that propels us and motivates us to do work missions. I just want to, I'm just going to pray over us right now. Father, we're here and we know that um, apart from you, we can do nothing. And no matter how passionate we feel about missions or how um, obligatory the idea feels or the idea of sharing the gospel or going overseas or any sort of related activity, Lord, you are the supplier of all the power that we need through the spirit. We, uh, we magnify you with our lives and God in every space, I pray that you would just fill us with yourself so that we can be uh, just concentrated with your spirit and a passion for you so that we are prepared and just motivated and moved to act and embrace missions in some way, in some form with our lives. I pray that for every one of us, God. So we thank you in your name, amen. All right, with that, I wanna move on to the source. What is the source of missions? Now that we've explored the purpose I want to take a look at the source. And if the question 
is what is the source of missions? The answer is easy. Uh, the Bible. That's that's my answer to that. Uh, there's no. I don't think there's a blank for you, but it's just what it is. Uh, but what if in the Bible we saw an all-encompassing focus on drawing the nations to God through His people? That's what I want to dive into right now. In the New Testament, it's easy to see God's heart for the nations, even though uh, even through just the five great commissions we read earlier. Uh, but most of, in, also most of the New Testament is written by a missionary named Paul the Apostle. And that theme permeates so much of his writing. And so the New Testament is just all over the place, right? But what about the Old Testament? We tend to think of God in a different light when, when we read the Old Testament versus the New. In fact, he may seem to us like, like a different person. While the Old Testament does show us facets of God's character that feel sort of unfamiliar and even harsh to us, it still includes an emphasis on God's love and his desire for all the nations to be drawn to himself through worship. In Genesis 12, one through three, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. To him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this moment, God establishes Abram from whom the whole lineage of Israel would rise and grow. As early as Genesis 12, God sets apart his chosen people that would bless the nation. His, cho- his chosen people that would bless the nations. Then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 9, the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's in Exodus 9. Joshua 4. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And in 1 Samuel 17, we looked at this a little bit last week. Then David said to the Philistine, to Goliath, you come at me, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines, the states, the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Through these verses that we just explored, in Exodus, Joshua, 1 Samuel, we see God use miracles and great signs to elevate Israel in the sight of all nations. Here in the Old Testament, God's relationship to Israel is a, is a come-and-see religion, a come-and-see religion, where he's doing these different things, and it is a testament to the other nations of the power 
of the God of the Israelites. And Ezekiel 38, 23 says, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And so in that verse and in many other instances, the prophets also are utilized to emphasize God's heart for the nations. The books of the prophets contain pronouncements of God's punishments on Israel for disobeying him, as well as God's desire to raise them up from the ashes. Both those things, the punishment and uh, wanting to raise them up, both of these things were designed to establish God's name throughout the world. And then through the New Testament and uh, through verses like John 20, 21, we read earlier, we see a trans- transition in strategy from come and see to go and tell. From come and see to go and tell. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so even, even so I am sending you. Go and tell, right? First Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This verse describes a key reality of missions. We are now God's people, God's chosen people, right? A holy nation, a people for his own possession. But our goal is now to promote the worship of God by proclaiming the excellences, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We use our testimony of life in Christ to proclaim him to the nations. The Bible as a whole contains the repeated theme of God's heart for the nations. And I, I encourage you to be alert to this theme throughout your times in the word and maybe do a deeper study on the repetition of God's desire to be known and worshiped by all peoples, not just you and me. So I just encourage you to, to look into that on your own. That was just a quick, very quick overview of those things. Moving on, the need of missions, the need of missions. So I've been talking, I've been kind of using the word loosely missions tonight. And uh, earlier I mentioned, used the term world missions. I think there's a lot of confusion that surrounds the word missions. It gets thrown around in many different ways. Maybe we want to live missionally or living on mission or my mission field is the ground beneath my feet. That's what some people say. In fact, some of us may be wondering, what's the big deal about missions overseas when there's such a need here? And I get that. And there is a need here. But I think that clarification in this area can help us as we move forward in pursuit of being a world Christian, a world Christian. We're going to get into that later. But uh, first, here's a definition from the traveling team. This is a group of people that uh, have come a few times to challenge into this area to speak on God's heart for the nations in the Bible. And so anyway, uh, this is from their website. Missions is the whole task, endeavor, and program of the Church of Jesus Christ to reach out across, across geographical and or cultural boundaries by sending missionaries to evangelize people who have never heard or will have, or have little opportunity to hear the saving gospel. I think that it's prudent for us to stick to this definition for clarity's sake, and this means that we are all intended to be disciple makers, but we're not all missionaries, and that's okay. 
But I just want to make that clarification for our purposes tonight and moving forward. So regardless of the terminology, why bother going when we can stay and make disciples here? We have to understand the need of missions, of overseas missions, of world missions. First, let's take a look at the word. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You might be thinking, David, I already knew that. Uh, I know, that's okay. <laughs> but we need to clearly establish the crucial and severe truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is a singular thing. In light of this, we have to grapple with the idea of access. That's the key. I kind of, I didn't really know how to put it, but access. The key is access. It's somewhere on your sheet. I don't know. Uh, take a look at that. The key is access. Yes. What, what does David mean by this? Who has access to the way, the truth, and the life? That's what I'm asking. Because the answer to, to that should in some way affect where we decide to proclaim this gospel. Right? And so... Does that make sense? Because whoever has access to the gospel and whoever has the least access to the gospel, maybe that's the person or the peoples that we need to be most intentional about reaching. I'm going to get into some more terms here. Three more key words. One, unreached. Unreached is a term that is used to apply to certain peoples, people groups, nations throughout the world. Unreached. And uh, an unreached people, this is from the Joshua Project, uh, this uh, quote, an unreached people is a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group without outside assistance. They're unreached. Number two is reached. Number two is reached. There's the unreached and there's the reached. The reach is everybody else, right? And so the West, and certainly the USA, is a reached area. By this, I mean that pretty much everyone in our country has access to the gospel to the extent that they could find it on their own or be approached by somebody who could tell it to them, right? And then three, there's a third term here, unengaged, unengaged. We got unreached, reached, or unengaged. And this is actually a subset of unreached. But uh, an unengaged, unreached people group, a UUPG, I haven't used the term before, but there it is, has no known active church planting underway. There's just no plans for people to go there. It might be for a number of reasons, but there are no plans there. And so these terms help give us context to what areas of the world have more or less need for the gospel due to their access. And so this is where the 1040 window comes in. Uh, I got a picture of that. Yes, there it is, the 1040 window. The 1040 window, it, it, raise your hand if you've heard this term before. That is the, perhaps the majority, but uh, that's why I'm talking about it because it's not everybody. The 1040 window is a box stretching from Western Africa to the eastern edge of Asia between 10 degrees and 40 degrees north latitude. It's that big old box. And 
So there, the st statistics on this box, so picture that area, got kind of the north part of Africa, just the whole, pretty much the entire Middle East, and then uh, a bunch of Asia, right? Uh, so some more stats, I got those on a, a slide. 95% of the world's 3.5 billion unreached live in that window. 95% of the world's 3.5 billion unreached live in this window. One third of the Earth's total land area is in this window. And then two thirds of the Earth's population live in this window. 80% of the world's poorest live in this window. And, and this is the kicker here, 8% of the world's Christian missionary force works here. So like, think about that, if 95% of the world's unreached live in that area. And if 8% of our missionaries are going there, that feels like, like backwards, right? So that's, that's interesting, right? 0.1% of the world's Christians, world Christians' income goes to support missionary activity here. So why is the 1040 window a big deal? It's because for once again, a lot of reasons, um, there is not enough activity happening there missionary-wise. And that's, that's a big problem. That's a big need to fill. And part of it has to do with these are dangerous areas, not just, to, not just to preach the gospel, but to be a Christian in some of these areas. And so looking at these facts, you know, there is an apparent need for the gospel in other parts of the world besides ours. And specifically, this applies to that key access. We have access and everybody that we interact with in, in where we live has access to the gospel, but the people in that window and in other parts of the world as well, don't have the kind of access that we do, which makes, which raises the question, right? Of what, what should we do about that? And how can we respond to this? And so, some responses that we can have. What can I do? What can I do about this, this disparity, really, where uh, it doesn't seem like the, the resources are being applied to the right places? What can we do about this disparity in the world? What role can we play? I have three suggestions. These are just some possibilities for you to explore. First is to pray. First, pray. Matthew 9.38 says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord, of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray earnestly that God would send laborers there. This is a reasonable, this is a prayer that Jesus told us to pray. So that's a, that's a good sign. You should probably pray that. <laughs> we live in a time in history when so much information is available to us pretty much all the time. And while we sometimes squander that gift on social media or otherwise, we can access data that can help us in our prayer efforts for the nations. It can enable us to be specific in our prayers so that they can um, just be, be clear to God so that he might uh, respond to them. Two apps that I know of actually can be valuable for the purpose of prayer. There's Operation World and the Joshua Project. Yep, those two. Both of those focus on an unreached people group to pray for daily. They just give you one right there. They inform you with prayer needs and statistics that help you in your prayer goals for people groups around the world. World, And once again, we're not just talking about countries. We're talking about individual people groups. And um, I, I got the Joshua Project on my phone that I try and look at every day. And, uh, 
and you can just press a little button that says you're praying, and you can see how many other people are praying for them right now. Right uh, today is you're, we're praying for the Saeed in Bangladesh, and uh, it's a population of over a million people, and zero percent Christian, zero percent evangelical, and their status is unreached, and um, their main religion is Islam, and so then it. It, it can scroll here. It gives me all these different other facts, where they are and um, what resources they do that have been made, have been developed in their language and all this different stuff. But uh, even even those stats that I did see, it's, it's, it's grim. And so we can utilize resources like that to pray for these type of people every day. These people that we, we don't have access to them. <laughs> but uh, that's just a really awesome way that we can use the, the information that is so abundant to us. And then two, you can send. Send is number two um, application you can make. You can help send missionaries by choosing to give toward their work financially. And I know what you're thinking. Nobody, nobody in this room feels particularly rich, but in the context of the entire world, we are so fortunate and I just really wanted you to consider giving sacrificially toward a missionary in another country for the sake of the gospel spreading in other parts of the world. And you can make a difference in the way that you decide to use even your money. And so this is once again, not a way that uh, you're actively having to go, but it is some, some way that you can make it so that your money that you may spend elsewhere on a coffee or on, I don't know, whatever you tend to spend your money on, it can go toward an eternal investment, right? So you can send people. And then three, you can go. Go is the other, the third one there. And so uh, maybe you guys knew I was getting here, but uh, <laughs> summer short-term missions are a great way to get your feet wet in the area of missions. I encourage each of you to consider and pray about going on a summer mission trip so that you can help the full-time workers there and so God can show you the need firsthand and grow your heart for the nations. I honestly see missions as a twofold thing where when you go short-term, it's like you are there to make a difference and it is an, an eternal difference for people who do not have the kind of access to the gospel that we do. And it also changes you fundamentally and it makes you a more equipped person to go out into the world and make disciples wherever it is you end up living. And then long-term missions are not out of the question either. Understanding the needs alone, uh, along with our desire to please God, should prompt each one of us to consistently wrestle with the possibility of going overseas as missionaries. Honestly, if you're called, then, then great, but you can go without some sort of heavenly vision or calling per se. But really, we understand that, you know, we are called to make disciples of all nations and understanding these things, the purpose, the source, and the need of missions. It's like, there's really nothing stopping you from like going and pursuing that, just like the sheer importance of it eternally. And so, as you can see, there's one last thing on your handout, the World Christian Diagram. I'm going to get onto that really fast. What are we at? That's not too bad. All of us start out, I'm just going to just go right into it. All of us start out on the left, Christian. That's the, the first thing there. I think it's going to write, yep, right there. You're right, Christian underneath that stick figure on the left. This is, this is why, this is why I got a graphic design degree right here. 
The initial, so, so every one of us is in that category at some point. So the initial goal, however, is to move from the left to the middle, to become a world Christian. To move from the left to the middle, to become a world Christian. And so what does that mean? Being a world Christian means you understand three things. So we're going to, there's uh, three kind of things down below that. God's word. First, God's word. What does the Bible have to say about the world and missions? We already looked at this. We already got some, we got some verses now, but I encourage you to study more on your own. What does God's word have to say about the world and missions? And then two, God's world. First is God's word. Two is God's world with an L. What's the condition of the world? The 1040 window gives us a revealing glimpse into how much more work is needed to bring every people group to the knowledge of Jesus. So to really get step into this world Christian category, you want to be seeking to understand what's the condition of the world and just like how can people be a part of what God's doing to make disciples of all nations. And then three is God's work. God's work. Once again, kind of already got into this. God's work. Choose to pray, send, or go, right? Don't make excuses. <laughs> so just choose, choose one of those things in order to be involved with what God's doing, God's work. And so that's uh, the third thing. So that's, those are the three things that make somebody a world Christian. And so establishment in these areas enables us to become a world Christian. But what about the guy on the right? So when we, when, when we are a world Christian and begin to train others as world Christians, we become a mobilizer. Mobilizer. That's the third guy. And so a, mo- a mobilizer, it's indicated by the arrow that the immobilizer attends to Christians to help them become world Christians with a world perspective, a world vision, right? And so, and then they can, it's like discipleship, right? You're making disciples to make disciples. You're making world Christians who make world Christians. And so really make sure that that is a goal that you're trying to get into your life that like, wow, I really want to be a world Christian who is attentive and seeking to understand God's word, God's world and God's work and how it can be a part of that. And then I, I really encourage you guys, what do I need to do? Maybe, maybe think about this, write this down. What do I need to do to become a, a world Christian or to be a mobilizer what are some things in my life that I have to change? What are some things I have to understand better? What do I have to do to be a world Christian or a mobilizer? These are the things I want to get in your head. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and pray to close us here, but then we'll have an exercise that I'll explain in a second. But um, let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us here. And thank you, Father, thank you for the access that we have and the fact that each of us knows you. God, that is such a blessing and we can't possibly overestimate that. And so we just, we glorify you, we honor you, we thank you for that gift in our lives. And Father, um, as we leave here tonight, as we go on and we, we pray and we think about how we can be involved in 
the things that you're doing in the world. God, you are active. And sometimes it's hard for us to see just, just all the ways in which that you are reaching the world for you. But God, you, you, uh, you want to do that through us. So I pray that we would all come to you each individually and ask, how can I be involved? How can I be a world Christian, a mobilizer, or somebody who will go even to, uh, to reach the nations because they need that. Otherwise, they are spending an eternity doomed, an eternity away from you. And Father, just help us to wrestle with these truths that, uh, that pierce deeply, but they are, they are true nonetheless. And we need to understand that you love every person and you're willing that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. So help us, help us be a help in making that happen. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.